Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 28, Don't Interrupt the Sorrow. Donna Chang and Danielle Devenu were in the laboratory when the alarm signaled it was time to recover the team. Chang worked the controls, moving from station to station. Devenu kept her distance, arms crossed. The project administrator gazed up at the overhead displays and readouts. Something's wrong. Where's Ganaya? It's nothing unexpected, Donna spoke curtly, her fingers punching colored buttons. Nothing I can't handle. Danielle stepped forward. That wasn't the question. <sighs> Meryl was called to the infirmary. Then get her down here, Danielle said. Donna ignored Devenu. Our goal with this latest excursion was to draw more power, to give them more power. She continued working, focused on extracting the explorers from the green stream. As you know, the more we channel, the greater opportunity we have to heal the general, to give them all greater memory retention and to extend the capacity of human tolerance so they can remain in the stream longer. You're conducting experiments with those men, Danielle leaned into the engineer. You've been sanctioned by the council for taking liberties. You deal with the council, Danielle. I'll operate this technology. Now unless you have something to contribute, Chang drew back three faded levers, get out of my way. Danielle straightened. Her bleached blonde eyebrows shot downward. She was tired angry, but was not going to let either emotion control her. Gas emitted from the transference chambers. Motors whined. Hydraulics lifted the lid from each coffin. Castro, Cuddy, and Bath lay immersed in lime-green, translucent fluid. Plastic pipettes withdrew slowly from each man's skull. Danielle walked behind Donna. She stood between the coffins. Castro's eyes opened first, then Bath's. Danielle moved to help Castro, but then she saw something was wrong with Cuddy. Donna! She braced the pale, groggy general. Help Cuddy! The engineer leapt from her sliding chair and rushed to the Major's side. Cuddy's eyes were closed, his face contorted. His impressive musculature flexed, veins popped from his throat to his temples. Nearby, Bath sat up in his transference module. Green silicone gel dripped from him, like oil. He didn't hesitate to remove the pulse and breathing monitors attached to his temples, arms, and chest. He turned, kicking his bare legs over the sides of the coffin. What's wrong with Cuddy? Donna checked the Major. She followed the wires from the module to McGillicuddy's wrists. She checked the back of his head to ensure the pipettes had fully retracted from his skull. A thin pool of blood speckled the fluid in the coffin. This wasn't unusual. I think he's had a seizure. Cheng spoke with some urgency. Get Mural down here, Danielle demanded. Now. Bath leapt from his coffin. Liquid dripped to the floor. He moved dizzily to Cuddy's side. Go, he told Cheng. As the engineer hurried to get Ganaya, John hovered over his friend's body. 
his mind filled with visceral memories of their past eight hours together. Their minds were transferred into robot bodies on the surface. A blend of intense images, life-threatening, mind-numbing experiences rushed through him. An epic slideshow. Hours felt like days. Come on, Cuddy. Bath pressed the Major's shoulder. He pried open the other man's mouth. Jaws gnashed like a vice. Quickly, Bath pressed a thick tube between his friend's teeth. What is it? Castro asked from behind Bath. What's wrong? John turned, saw Devenu helping the general into his antiquated wheelchair. A cotton towel lay across Castro's lap. Devenu hovered nearby, a cross look on her otherwise appealing face. Bath watched the monitors, his blood pressure stabilizing. He looked down, saw Cuddy's eyes rolling beneath dark eyelids. The Major's legs kicked, but his torso seemed to settle, waiting in the green silicone. John moved to Kanaya's vacant medical console. He sifted through medical kits, labeled vials, containers of hypos and surrettes. While the professor tore apart Ganaya's workstation, General Castro reflected. He thought about his encounter with the magistrate on Governor's Island. The admittedly mentally ill old man fancied himself a chemist who set up a laboratory in the island's chapel. Benjamin questioned the disheveled, nude man. The magistrate claimed that those who ingested a cosmos of pharmaceuticals used to treat mental illness were spared immediate mutations. The drugs prevented them from passing along mutant genetic material to their offspring. The magistrate and his mutant counterpart, La Signa Bell, a half-woman, half-swan creature, tested their experiments on mutants in hopes of developing a cure. Bath located an empty, hypodermic needle and a half-filled vial of a valporic acid compound. He stabbed the vial, tipped it upside down. Come on. Behind them, rough metal lab doors opened. Dr. Ganaya swept into the cluttered room, followed closely by Chang. Get out of my way, Mural urged. Ganaya moved in. She went to work. Red circles ringed her black eyes. Like the others, she was exhausted. Mural swiped the needle from Bath. To his surprise, she flashed a look of approval, then punctured Cuddy's forearm where dark veins spiked. Ganaya pushed the plunger, then leaned into Bath. IV tubing and drip. We need to get him out of here and to the hospital immediately. Devenu came around to face the haggard general. What happened up there? So much. We found a suitable place to store the simulacra. He faced Chang. You said the modifications, <clears throat> the upgrades you made, were supposed to extend the life of the robots. This is no way to conduct an exploration of this kind. It was you who separated the team, Chang shot back. You don't know what the hell we're dealing with up there. You have no idea. Danielle patted the old man's bony, spotted shoulder. We have time for that. A few feet away, Mural started an intravenous drip into Cuddy's arm. She handed the drip bag to Bath. Help us, she barked at Donna. The three of them struggled to extract the naked, now drugged Major from his module. Green gel dripped to the floor, creating a puddle at their feet. Suddenly aware of his own nudity, John forced the IV bag into Chang's slender hand. Hold on a minute. He rushed to the back of the laboratory and pulled a tight gray uniform over his body. He walked between the porcelain coffins, back to where Mural and Donna wrestled with Cuddy's slack body. Here. Benjamin pushed himself from his wheelchair. Though fatigued, he found he regained some feeling in his extremities. You need to get him to the hospital. Take it. 
Castro braced himself on the nearby table while Danielle assisted him. John, Merrill, and Donna hoisted Cuddy into the chair. They spirited the unconscious law enforcement officer to the lab exit. Come on, Ganaya led the way. Pushing the sluggish old wheelchair, John glanced over his shoulder at the general. You okay? Go, Benjamin nodded. We'll catch up later. As the others fled through the sliding doors, Castro shifted his weight, turned to Danielle. The Phoenix Council are, she started to say, before the general interrupted her. We need to talk. Now. Bath pushed Cuddy's unconscious body in the wheelchair. At his left, Chang held the intravenous drip bag that delivered saline and nutrients into the Major. A few feet ahead, Ganaya led the way. They continued up the long ramp. The chair's wheels creaked. Bath glanced down at his coveralls, stained in green gel. This is how stories about the lab spread throughout the project. He thought about his introduction to Cuddy, the day the Major showed up at his apartment, the fear in his roommate's voice when he heard John was summoned to the lab. This is why people don't trust the council. They rounded a corner into a wide hall. John gazed up at the security cameras following the movements of citizens in the corridor. What happened up there? Donna asked. Bath recalled Cuddy's conflict with the mutants near the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. The mutants and survivors in the burning wreckage on Wall Street. He thought of the naked woman, body painted, walking mindlessly through crowds of gray and blue smoke. Nothing out of the ordinary. Bath heard his voice, but instantly felt awkward. That wasn't what he wanted to say. Get him into the lift, Meryl said, turning to block wandering eyes from seeing Cuddy. We'll take it from here, John. At the elevator, Bath relinquished control of the wheelchair to Kanaya. Get some rest, she told him. We'll do everything we can. The lift doors opened. John felt outside of his tired body. He watched them step inside with his fellow explorer. He stepped away, stood idly for a few moments, then lumbered down the winding hall. Sloped ramps led to the higher levels of the project. The professor ignored roving eyes, curious glances. He thought he clearly heard shots fired overhead, bullets scattering across pavement. Remembering explosions, his jaw tightened. On the surface, Cuddy led the way from the destruction into the welcoming arms of the otherwise benevolent Oddfellows. With General Castro, they descended into the subway under Manhattan. There, Octavia, one of the Oddfellows, fought with Cuddy. Bath hoped Castro was truly successful in convincing the formidable woman to protect their simulacra, to guard their secrets. At the compartment John shared with his roommate, Mike Helms, he was surprised to find Mike laying in the bunk facing the wall. Helms snored deeply. When John last saw his friend, Mike was in the hospital, tending to his comatose lover, Mindy. The woman was beaten in an altercation between lower-class Phoenix citizens and law enforcement. Ever loyal, Mike refused to leave Mindy's side. Moving quietly and saying nothing, John collapsed into a chair near his fold-away workspace. He was surprised to see the desk open. He shut his eyes and breathed deeply. When he opened his eyes, he scanned his surroundings. After his time on the planet's surface, the dim and the dullness of the Phoenix Project felt like a foreign world. Eight hours of sleep, eight hours in the green stream, 
eight hours awake. I'm living multiple lives, he thought, serving multiple masters. Not enough time. Not enough time. Not enough time. Gazing down, something caught John's eye, something out of place. His blue journal, the summation of his unedited philosophical musings and thoughts on the Phoenix Project. He usually kept the book secluded, hidden. The last time he left the apartment, he was distracted. He had no memory of working in the book recently, let alone of leaving it out. Bath's journal contained personal thoughts, memories of his father, Diarmid, theories about his father's exile, and John's stifled relationship with his mother, Caitlin. The journal's contents also disclosed John's unfiltered concerns about the Phoenix Project, the impact isolation, diminishing resources, and authoritarian control had on the citizens. Anxiety was the greatest threat to the Phoenix Council. Anxiety was responsible for intrepid distrust, fear, violence. It helped the dissidents recruit otherwise rational, reasonable, and logical constituents. Bath swept the notebook up in his hands, flipping to his last entry. I'm going to find a way that the survivors in the Phoenix Project can go back to the surface. He read the words written in his own hand to his protege, Harumi Gale. No more living and dying by the central processor's rules and directives. No more of the Shadow Council. I'm telling you this because right now, I don't know who to trust. And if anything happens to me, I want you to carry on my work. I want you to make sure those living underground know they don't have to any longer. John shook his head, recalling writing the note. Fingers fumbled through a few pages. He spotted something curious, something out of the ordinary. On a particular page where his own words were scattered and encoded to avoid being read by anyone but himself, an image appeared. Someone placed a square object under the page, rubbed the paper with a wax pencil. The remaining impression was square, taking up half the page. A perfectly round curve appeared at the top of the square. What was it? he wondered. Some kind of device? Perhaps a keycard, or... Then, he saw it. Beneath the icon, dark letters approximated John's own handwriting. He read the words, There is no hatch. John felt a rush of nerves, a feeling like his mind traveling the green stream. Emotions suppressed, every sense alive, then dimmed. He leapt to his feet. He turned to where Mike reclined peacefully. Bath touched Helm's shoulder, then shook him vigorously. Mike, Mike, get up. I have to talk to you. Mike's brown eyes opened slowly. Foggy, he turned, wiped a spot of drool from his unshaven chin. Uh, John, you're back? What's going on? Where have you been? Bath held up his open notebook, turned it to face his roommate. What the hell is this? Have you been reading my journal? Mike's unkempt eyebrows narrowed. Now hold on a minute, man. Why are you coming at me? Back up, damn it. Taken aback, John felt frustrated. Somebody's been writing in my journal. Helm sat up, joints cracking. Well, it damn sure wasn't me. What's gotten into you? You know I never tamper with your stuff. Bath pivoted, faced the wall. He gazed at the words again. There is no hatch. He remembered his father, his own belief that Dear Mid Bath sought an exit from the Phoenix Project. He mentioned this to Mike, to Harumi, and most recently, to Cuddy. Mike had access to the journal. Maybe Harumi did too, John thought. 
but her handwriting was distinct, sloppy. Sure, she could painstakingly recreate his handwriting, she had seen it enough, but why would she? No, Bat decided. Harumi had nothing to gain by trying to convince him, confuse him, or change his determined focus on escape from the Phoenix Project. But why those words? There is no hatch. These words, scrawled in his own hand, in his private notebook, it must have happened while he was in the green stream, in the simulacrum, touring the ravaged world above. There is no hatch. It must have been the council, Mike said. What? I don't know, maybe someone working for him. You're not one of the dissidents, but let's be honest. You've stirred up enough trouble in certain circles and... Devenue, John said. Mike sat on the edge of his bunk. What the hell are you talking about? Bath faced his roommate. Who's been in here? Been in our quarters? Law enforcement or... John, I haven't even been in here. Mike interjected, annoyed. This is the first time I've slept in days. I'm sorry, Mike. How's Mindy? Blue-gray rings circled Mike's eyes. Pale skin brightened slightly. She's out of the coma. They think she'll be all right. John held a shaky hand to his own chin and lip. I'm glad. He glanced at the notebook again. There is no hatch. John traced the unusual impression with his fingers. He held up the pages with a colored drawing. Mike, have you ever seen anything like this? The pest control worker stood, sighed deeply. It looks like a passkey of some kind. He scratched the back of his head. The law division uses those for the cell block. The council has something like that for restricted access areas. The rooms where the central processor is housed. John looked up, an orange eyebrow raised. The central processor? His mind raced. He wanted to believe the impression hinted at something, some artifact he was supposed to find. A disc. A key. He slumped over, fell into the chair at his desk. The journal slipped from his hands, dropped to the floor. John, are you all right? No, Mike. I'm not all right. Everything was mystery, Bath thought. Delusion, pretense, distrust, fear, control. The very emotions, causes, and principles that led to intransigence and destruction on the surface permeated the Phoenix Project. The professor prided himself on his intelligence, his ability to solve problems with logic. But the more he discovered, the more he experienced, he felt an overarching uncertainty a discontent greater than any physical obstacle hindering the freedom of the Phoenix Project citizens below or those scavengers and survivors up above. Everyone tried to make their way through a world of their own making or a hell they didn't deserve. When the others were gone, Castro asked Danielle to wait behind while he showered. The project administrator agreed. The general bathed in a shower at the back of the laboratory. The stall was reserved to wash those doused in hazardous chemicals and toxins. As lukewarm water crashed over his aged body, Benjamin found he was tired. But to his surprise, his head ached more than his body. 
whatever Ching did to upgrade the machines had a regenerative effect on his impaired spine and legs. He moved more freely, despite the difficulty in concentrating. Could the curious technology restore him? Make him whole? At least for a few more years? Finished showering, the general wrapped a robe around himself. He stumbled across the concrete floor, bracing himself on pillars and furniture. I don't suppose you know how to shave an old man without slitting his throat, Benjamin smiled at Danielle. Devenu stood near the metal table, where the team often met. Chang's hardcover red notebooks were stacked neatly at the end of the table. Folded maps lay nearby, images of what the world above once was. Sit down, Danielle instructed. Eh, the general collapsed into an uncomfortable rolling chair. You may want to cut me just on general principles. Castro watched the young woman retrieve a straight razor, soap, and tonic from a locker. Who knows how old this stuff is, Danielle said, strolling to the table. She searched the tarnished labels, leaned back. Castro did as he was told, reclining in the chair. Eyes closed, he heard the ambient hum of motors, machines, and gurgling chemicals being flushed through pipes and tubing, draining to who knew where. Devenu looked down at Castro. As he relaxed, crags and lines in his old face disappeared. He was handsome. The council insists we work closer together to make our reports, Danielle said, making a lather with the soap and water from a nearby pitcher. I'm sure. Hours seem like days, Danielle. Days or weeks. Months. I'll draw points of interest, Castro told her. Milestones from Liberty Island to City Hall. Devenu spread the soft but sour-smelling lather on the general's face. We don't know enough about the rockheads and morlocks yet, Castro continued. But there's some kind of mutation. Distinct tribes with their own leadership. Careful. Danielle wiped residual foam on Castro's robed shoulder. There's more. Benjamin recalled what he learned from Lieutenant John Running Bear and Professor Iku Kaminari, his encounter with the masked creature, Santa Muerte. He paused. Santa Muerte claimed to have followed him and his team. She knew things about Castro no one knew. Personal history. Intimate encounters. Danielle. There are forces at work beyond nation-states, nuclear war, and chemical attacks. He braced the arm of the chair. This would be a hell of a lot easier if I knew more about the Council. Who we're serving. Why. Hold still, Danielle said, holding the straight razor a few centimeters from Castro's chin. He opened his eyes, felt a disturbing rush of nerves from the base of his neck to the tips of his fingers. He wanted to shrug the feeling away. Instead, he was still as the young woman brought the blade to his skin, scraping away gray and silver whiskers. After a few moments in silence, Danielle wiped the razor on his robe. You braced them already. They weren't pleased. They said they would take my concerns to the central processor. Danielle squeezed the old man's chin and manicured fingertips. I'm confident they did. What difference does it make? Castro said. Danielle's lips parted slightly, but she did not speak. What? the general asked. Nothing. Danielle shook her head. A few strands of blonde fell over her forehead. She continued shaving the general, moving the blade across his cheeks and ragged throat. Castro held his breath until Devenu paused. He shifted in the chair, swiveled so he could look at the young woman head on, 
You do whatever they tell you, huh? Devenu started to nod, but stopped herself. She glanced at the floor, then up at the general. She held the razor out to him. Benjamin took the razor carefully, but spoke with a sense of urgency. I understand the council has to take care of the people here in the Phoenix Project. Trust me, Danielle. I've been responsible for men's lives before. But there's a big difference between making every decision for them so you can convince yourself you're in control, and giving them freedom to choose, giving their lives purpose and meaning. What do you propose, General? There are more people on the surface, people we can help. But we don't even know where we are. Castro nodded. They didn't trust you, the project administrator, with that information? Danielle shook her head. She walked to the table wearily, turned her back on Benjamin. I don't even know that they know. What do you know, Danielle? Devenu leaned against the table. She turned, sank into a nearby chair. She pondered the general for a long moment. She trusted him. She knew he was right, but she was afraid. Danielle? After another long moment, the project administrator spoke. The Phoenix Project was established in the second half of the 20th century. I don't know when the computer was built, but it's my understanding it was designed to evolve, to support the needs of the project over as much as 300 years. A mass of lines formed above Benjamin's piercing pool blue eyes. 300 years? Devenu nodded. It was anticipated that if there was a nuclear attack, the surface wouldn't be habitable for at least that length of time. Castro shook his head in disbelief. Danielle, it's only been 43 years. If I understand correctly, your Shadow Council, Phoenix Council, she corrected him, whatever. The computer and the council are unable to care for the population. Resources are spread thin. The conflict between classes, that's the fault of the dissidents, Danielle shot back. As soon as she said the words, her thoughts flashed to her father, Jacques, his role in organizing those who opposed the council and central processor. Castro shrugged. Listen to me. You've been around Dr. Bath too long, Danielle interrupted him, gazing at her clenched fist on the metal table. Castro reached out. He forced her fist open, felt her smooth hand. He softened his tone. Danielle, you're a beautiful young woman. You're smart. Capable. You follow orders. You're exactly what the Council wants you to be. But there's more to you. I know it. I sense inside you an old soul. Don't let that faceless Council manipulate you when you know what's right. Danielle removed her hand from his, slowly. She crossed her arms in front of her. What do you propose? Benjamin leaned back in his chair. He sat up and wiped the remaining soap from his face. Help me save those on the surface, Danielle. Help me save them and the 3,000 people in the Phoenix Project. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, 
Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. John Running Bear is based on a character created by Fire Pit Creative Group's close friend, Sam Ashu. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash firepitcreativegroup, and on YouTube at firepitcreativegroup. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group. Thank you.